362 AD, the Roman Emperor Julian wrote to a high priest of the pagan charities that the pagans needed the equal virtues of Christians. For recent Christian growth was caused by, quote, their moral character, even if pretended, end quote. And, quote, they support not only their poor, but ours as well. Everyone can see that that our people lack aid from us, end quote. The character and priorities of Jesus embodied in the ancient world caused those who hated Christians to want to be like them in some way. While the norms of social service and community solidarity have been staples in our culture, the church is once again in a position to have the surrounding culture say, we need to be like them, being Christians. The church, those who are followers of Jesus, have always been meant to be an alternative community in our world. Paul's thesis in this section of Colossians that we find ourselves in is live in the present as the kind of human you will become. Paul is describing the, the, the vision that Jesus has for humanity and that he invites us into and that we in fact are if we would just live how Jesus lived. And so Paul, in the first part of Colossians chapter 3, in writing to this church that is being pressured by the culture around them, says, put to death sinful behavior. Put to death actions and, and heart-level dispositions that Jesus would have nothing to do with. Second, embody the new humanity. Following Jesus means joining his new humanity. That we should resist the old and aspire to the new. That we should live in a way, with the picture of how God sees us. Because if Christ is all and in all, we should live accordingly. The characteristics that led to the rise of Christianity are the very characteristics described by Paul in today's teaching. How is the new humanity characterized? First, it's characterized as people who remember their identity. Paul roots action in identity. The identity of the Christian believer, the identity that, that, that when we say we are in Christ, it is an identity that is received from God rather than achieved by us. Your identity in Christ, when you've put your faith and trust in Jesus, is something that is received from God rather than achieved by you. And this is a drastically different vision of identity than our current culture. Identity for many of us is something that we achieve or label or aspire to be. That, that we, we see a picture and then we go after it to make sure it's true. Or it's legislated out to us by someone else that then we have to fit ourselves into that narrative or picture. The Christian view of identity is something that is then received that we can then rest in. Paul says that these believers are God's chosen ones, that they're holy, that they are loved. Some versions may say elect. So whether it's chosen ones, holy, loved, and or elect, it's a boundary-marking term for those who have placed their faith in Jesus. This means that God has chosen the Christian to be something special and part of his plan. Their aspirations in life should match how God sees them through Jesus. Scott McKnight in his commentary on Colossians says this, that we 
agree that the privilege of being elect or chosen ones carried with it a responsibility, a point not always remembered by some people today, more concerned to assert their rights than to accept their obligations. The moral vision is clear. These believers are to divest themselves of the ways of the flesh and death and clothe themselves with the new ways of Christ and life. Now, that's a metaphor and a picture of something that we talked about last week. So if you missed last week's teaching, I would encourage you to go back and watch it and participate in that as we looked at shedding the old dirty clothes of the old way of being human and begin to go on the journey of putting on Christ, which is the new way of being human that he has invited us into. Second, the new humanity is characterized as people who commit to the Christian community, as people who commit to the community. But we should put on heartfelt compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. So again, it's being clothed with something. That's the picture. Is it something we, we, we choose to put on? Each one of these qualities mentioned in this passage expresses themselves in relationships. A significant measure of our Christian life is found in simply at how we treat people and the quality of relationships that we have with them. So as we look at these first three, and then the last two really are manifestations of the third one. First, let's look at heartfelt compassion. Compassion comprises of three elements, a need expressed, a response of mercy and love to that need, and an action that alleviates that need. So again, You've got to be in relationship with people to have compassion. You've got to hear a need from another. You've got to have an internal compulsion that says, that's a need that I should meet, and then take the tangible steps to meet that need. That's compassion, something that's heard externally, that that then on a heart, on a gut level, if we want to get very technical, on, on a gut level, prompts you to then tangibly care for that person by meeting that need. That's heartfelt compassion. Second, kindness. The ancient writers defined this virtue of kindness as the man whose neighbor's good is as dear to him as his own. It's used to describe wine, which has grown mellow with age and lost its harshness. Again, it's describing types of relationships. You know when you are in conversation with someone and you say something and their tone is biting back. The Christian response to people, while can be firm, must be kind of must not have a bite to it that rips at the person's soul. It's the move of the heart that translates to care and work for the good of those around them. Third, humility. This is not considered, or this wasn't, was considered a virtue among the ancient Greeks. This may be apparent of sorts to both gentleness and patience. Gentleness shows how humility will affect my actions towards others. That we will not dominate, manipulate, or coerce for our own ends, even if we have the power and ability to. Patience shows how humility will affect my reaction towards others. 
I will not become short or filled with resentment towards the weaknesses and missteps with others. Each of these necessitate someone else being the object. You cannot exhibit these characteristics that manifest themselves in a level of action without someone being the object, with, without another person in the relationship. What this depicts is a rugged commitment to the community via presence and advocacy in the journey to becoming Christ-like. I've experienced this firsthand in my own life. I think of last August when Ruth and I ran the Spartan race with some friends. If you don't know what the Spartan race is, it's it's a, a long race, several miles, and there are very difficult obstacles at intervals along that race. And so we had 12 to 13 obstacles over about a three, three and a half mile to four mile race. And at the beginning of that race, we made a commitment as a group that said we were going to finish the race together. So we were making commitment to each other and for how we would run. So as we got into the race, instead of leaving the person who lagged behind, which was me, those aren't my my medals up there. Those are Ruth, so I, I'm not as accomplished a, as her. But whenever the person who, who lagged behind, whether it was because of an obstacle, because we all had different strengths and weaknesses, we all had different levels of conditioning. Again, me who mostly lagged behind. The others would encourage, they would coach, and at sometimes they would even help another person over the obstacle so that the obstacle could be accomplished. People who commit to community in a, in, a, in a very rugged and passionate way lift others around them on the journey to becoming like Christ. Rather than racing off to the end of the race to worry about their time or worry about the appearance of of being slowed down by others. In the Spartan, there was a maintain or there was a rugged commitment to each other and to the goal of finishing together. A local church is a group of people from all different walks of life who are saying we are committed to each other and to the common goal of becoming like Christ. When you agree to be a part of the church, you are agreeing to place yourself within these types of relationships, to, to, to draw close to people rather than create distance from others. And if you are someone who is trying to explore what it might be to be part of Generations Church, this is the type of community that we are attempting to pursue together, to cultivate together, to coach, to cheer, to lift each other up on our journey to becoming like Christ. And Paul isn't done of describing the type of Christian community. He says people, this new humanity, this Christian community, are people who are motivated by Jesus' model. Because we know as we get into relationships with others, it can be tiring. It, it, we can grow weary. We can think of how much more. But we are to be motivated by Jesus' model. And it shows up in forgiveness. Paul says that we should be forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgives us, so you must also do. We are told to live forgiving one another after the pattern of Jesus's forgiveness towards us. And understanding the way Jesus forgave us will always make us more generous with forgiveness and never less generous. Forgiveness is a deep and loaded concept. 
C.S. Lewis once said, forgiveness is a lovely idea until you have something to forgive. I could spend another hour discussing the nuances of forgiveness, even at the mention of forgiveness. Some of you have tensed up. Every situation is unique. The temptation for us as we discuss forgiveness is to go, yeah, but what about? And, and, and to, to name an exception to the rule. I've actually recorded a supplementary video that takes some more time and care for the nuances of forgiveness. It discusses the process of feelings and emotions that lead to unforgiveness. The video also shares distinguishing marks between decisional forgiveness, forbearance, and emotional forgiveness. I would also say if this is something that you would like to overcome and begin to work through, let us set up a Zoom call this week. And just hear from me that I am committed to you and become and to your journey of becoming like Christ. So it's not fair for me to say, yes, you sure should forgive without being willing to j- go on that journey of forgiveness with you. Hear where Paul is coming from. If we are to be the embodiment of Jesus in the world, then we must have the mindset and actions to reflect his disposition and priorities in the world. Paul's basis for forgiveness isn't how it's healthy for you, which it is, or how unforgiveness harms your life, which it does. Paul's basis is in Jesus. When we consider the staggering debt Jesus forgave for us, we will be able to forgive others. It models for us and motivates us to care for others that we, we see the seriousness in which they have harmed us. It doesn't make it right, but we will begin to forgive. And some of you who are participating in this service right now might not think of yourself as a bad person in need of forgiveness. On this midweek podcast, John and I are going to discuss how in the pursuit of being a good person and that mindset that we're really not that bad is the enemy of being the person God has created you to be. So tune into that this week. But when we think of how Christ has forgiven us, it should make us much more generous with forgiveness. Unless we are motivated by Jesus' model, we will opt for a lesser version of being human. Here's how that can often play out. As we contrast, or as I I contrast how God forgives versus how we can tend to react or lack of, in human relationships. God reaches out to bad people to bring forgiveness to them. The habit of humanity is not to reconcile if the offending person is is of bad character. God makes the first move towards us in forgiveness. The habit of humanity is to only be reconciled if the offending party craves forgiveness and makes the first move. Forgiveness initiates. God forgives often knowing that we will sin again, sometimes the exact same way. It's the habit of humanity to forgive only if the offending party solemnly promises to never do wrong again. God bore all the penalty for the wrong we did against him in Jesus. And the habit of humanity, when one is wrong, one will not only forgive unless the offender agrees to bear the penalty for the wrong done. God keeps reaching out to humanity for reconciliation, even when humanity refuses him again and again. 
and the habit of humanity, one will not, not continue to offer reconciliation if it is rejected once. God requires no probationary period to receive his forgiveness. In the habit of humanity, one often will not restore an offender without a period of probation. God's forgiveness offers complete restoration. In the habit of humanity, one may feel that they should be complimented when they merely tolerate those who sin against them. Once having forgiven, God puts his trust in us and invites us to work with him as co-laborers on the same mission to accomplish the goal. In the habit of humanity, one will not trust someone who has formally wronged him. With eyes wide open, patterned after the model of Jesus, we must choose to forgive over forget. doesn't make the wrong automatically right. Initially, it won't and doesn't lessen the pain. But if we are to be generous with our forgiveness, living as if our identity is shaped by Jesus, then we can and we will forgive over forget. Above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Love for Paul is the summary of all the things described so far in this passage. Love perfectly fulfills what God requires of us in relationships. The other virtues pursued without love become distorted and unbalanced. They become phony and they become fake. When Christ's love becomes your identity, it reorders all of your loves. It gives you the capacity to live in a world and love well while not being crushed or isolated, while not being forgotten or abandoned. One of the shows that I have watched during the Stay Home, Stay Healthy order is uh, like the toys that made us. I butchered the title, but it's this documentary on Netflix that goes back and looks at old toys and how they contributed to society. One of the toys that I found fascination with and I love and my kids love are Legos. We love Legos. We love constructing. I love building Legos and constructing really cool just towers and and just the stability of you can make something and there is a level of permanence. But Legos weren't always as stable as they are now. At one point, as, as the show describes, Legos actually had a hollow bottom underneath them. So you could only stack them so high before they would topple over. And then it stick together like they do now. At, eventually, Lego patented these, these tubes on the bottom inside the, the Legos. And the tubes on the bottom would then interlock with the studs on top of the other bricks. And then the studs neatly get wedged in between the tubes on the sides of every brick, making them stick together firmly. The clutch power of the Lego bricks has made it possible to create bigger and bigger sets without them falling apart. The clutch power of the church is love. Love holds believers from different backgrounds, of different ethnicities, of different genders, of different age, of different sexualities together. It's the super glue that unites us and it makes the watching world go, what in the world holds them together? It's a love that's patterned after Christ. Love are the tubes that enable us, that enable you to construct a life that isn't simply good, 
but it's godly. A godly life is a great life because it begins with an identity that is received rather than achieved. How is the new humanity characterized? The love of Christ embodied in the lives of people.